Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Sunait Rafwa. Sunait is a senior counsel in Foley's Washington, D.C. office, where she's a member of the finance practice group with a focus on the energy sector. Our conversation begins with Sunait sharing about her parents' journey to the U.S. in the early 80s, leaving Ethiopia to flee from the Civil War and landing in Colorado. Snyde talks about growing up in Colorado and how it was that she decided on college and ultimately what took her to law school. We have a really interesting conversation about the difficulties she had adjusting to life in law school. And as she reflects on her own experience, she provides some really great insight and recommendations for law students. Additionally, Snyde started her career at a firm other than Foley and Lardner. After the first, I think, three, four years of her career there, she actually transitioned in-house. So Sanait reflects on, you know, some of the differences between life in-house, life at a law firm, what being in-house taught her and the perspective she's able to bring within her practice. But she also talks about how exactly it was that Foley enticed her to return to a law firm. I also have to admit that this conversation is far more the path than the practice. (laughs) We talk about so many interesting things that I don't want to say I forgot because you'll see we had plenty to say, but I did not get a chance to ask her a lot about her current day job. So I hope that after this, you will visit her bio to learn more about what she does, but I also hope you will heed her advice on charting your own path and remaining your authentic self as you navigate a legal career. Hi, Sunait. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. We're just going to jump right in. Give me your professional introduction. Okay. Well, my name is Sanai Rahoa. I'm based in the DC office in the finance practice group, um, senior counsel, and I'm particularly a part of the energy industry team within the finance group. So I work a lot with, you know, our team here, John Eliason in the DC office and the associates on this side of things, but we also overlap quite a bit with the rest of our team in Milwaukee and, and LA as well. Thank you so much for that. As you know, and I think at this point, the listeners know, we will talk more about that. But in a bit, I first want to learn about you before you became a lawyer. So where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado for the majority of my life. And well, my family came to the U.S. in the early 80s. We're originally from Ethiopia. So went to high school in Denver, went on to go to Washington University in St. Louis for undergrad. And then after that, ended up at Georgetown for law school. So I've been going further and further east and away. And from we're gonna college. we're gonna <laughs> unpack all that. You know, there's no getting away from this by just summarizing your life in a minute. We are going to <laughs> unpack all that. Okay, so I actually don't know if I realized that you grew up in Denver. Mm-hmm. I was aware that your family's from Ethiopia, but if you maybe we could start there. So I'm assuming it's your parents who came over. You said in the was it the 80s? Yeah. So my dad first came in. 1982. Um, he was part of a group of, I'd say, I don't even know, probably less than 100 folks who they 
were part of the same refugee resettlement program and their sponsor. Well, my dad actually had an option. He had a sponsor who was in LA and then another sponsor who was in Denver. And then he ended up going with the one in Denver because he had heard of other folks who were going to Denver too. So he wanted to stay with everybody else. And I was just thinking about how nice it would have been to grow up in like a warmer climate. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, come on, dad. Okay, fine. So that's how he ended up in Denver first. And then, um, my mom at the time was living in Italy with her brother. There was a civil war happening in Ethiopia. And so, you know, folks were trying to sort of get away in different avenues. And so she was in Italy. My dad, after being in the U.S. for probably a year and a half or so, went to Italy. They got married. They had- so they knew, they knew each other beforehand, though. Like- no, it was an arranged marriage. <laughs> oh, really? Wow, that's yeah. interesting. Okay. Yep. So they got married, and then I showed up nine months later. But they moved back to the states, they all, and they all came to yeah, came back to the U.S. Okay. So I was probably I don't even know maybe like a year old. It's fuzzy, but I think I was less. Yeah. Than, I, I was little. I was. I mean, so my my entire like what I remember is of Denver. So, and then both my brothers were born in Denver as well. Um, okay. Well, and I don't want to. I don't know if this is obvious or not. It's probably not. But so for both your parents, they're through different means, escaping the civil war in Ethiopia, they get to the U.S. They don't have, like, are they restarting life, essentially? I mean, yeah, it was, I think for that, it was a really close-knit group of, you know, people from Ethiopia who, like, came here. We were all probably part of different regions in northern Ethiopia, but it was very much, like, start-over scenario. And to hear my parents talk about it, I don't think they ever thought that they would stay here forever. It was like, at first it was sort of like a, you know, get our education and we'll, you know, maybe we're going to go back home one day. My dad came to the U.S. and I mean, he didn't have a high school diploma at the time because it was interrupted by the war. And he ended up, he was a guerrilla fighter in the war and they call themselves freedom fighters. They were trying to, all these different groups in Ethiopia were trying to overthrow the, the basically military regime at the time. His particular group was not the one that ended up succeeding, but it they all had the same mission. So when he came to the U.S., it was he was like driving a cab at night, like working in nursing homes. He told me he worked at Burger King for a little Whatever bit. Whatever job he could hustling. do, I'm assuming. Really yeah. Hustling. And, you know, basically ended up putting himself through school, ended up going on to become a pharmacist. And, you know, just it was sort of. I don't even know, like just incredible to hear his story. And so it was always funny, like growing up, if me and my brothers would complain about anything at school, he was like, I didn't have a high school diploma when I came to the U.S. Like, don't complain to He's me like, at least anything. you get to go to school. What are you doing? I go know, back or to like, go to your we're school. so overwhelmed. And he goes, I used to drive all night and study in the morning and go to class. So it was always like, a, I mean, it was just a really high bar that you know, the built-in perspective. Yeah. Now, and, I, and we will move forward to talk about you, but I do, I do want to hear about your mom as well. So yeah. how did, for her settling in the U.S., what did she focus on doing? So my mom, I think, I feel like my dad was sort of a rare story. I think a lot of Ethiopians came here, would start out going to community college in Denver. And then, you know, the demands of life were just what they were that it didn't, you know, my mom had more kids. And so she like didn't get to finish, but she was a housekeeper for about 30 years. She first was at a hospital for a while, uh, ended up being a housekeeper with Marriott and mm-hmm. Sheridan. So she was cleaning her whole life. That was how she like took care of us and, or, you know, took care of just that, that was her way of providing. 
my parents unfortunately ended up getting a divorce and you know that I, it's so interesting because like when you talk to Ethiopians like back home the idea of divorce is just like so mm-hmm. it was such a foreign concept but you know the idea of having to come here and rebuild your entire way of being is I think puts a new strain on absolutely you're re- rebuilding everything right. yeah yes I mean, we had like other you know challenges as well but it was just I think incredibly difficult for them and I and I remember those periods of like you know just we didn't have a lot you know it was what it was but they were like but you're gonna you're gonna go to school and you're gonna get your education and you're gonna do better than what we had basically what you have yes well I really appreciate you sharing that also because I just think it's such interesting and an important context frankly to you know who you are and um, if I just let you say, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, <laughs> and then I went to Wash U, and then I went to Georgetown. Like my, you know, just like general background information. I didn't. <laughs> no, no, I know, but you know, for the purposes of this podcast, yeah. I obviously have to get you to to dig in a little. So I, I really do appreciate that context, and also for whatever this is worth, which is not much. So for me, I grew up in the Midwest, in a suburb of Milwaukee. I went to to college in D.C. And when it comes to Black people in the Midwest, you know, get roots in the South, but not as many recent immigrants. And so when I moved to D.C., I was told that I was Ethiopian. <laughs> like I had people just talk to you. And I'm yes, like, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. And refuse to believe me. And then, <laughs> OK, where are your people from? Where are your parents from? And I'm like, South Carolina, where are their parents from? South Carolina. And, you know, and they'd keep, and I was like, slavery? Like, I don't have anything else to tell you. Right. Just convinced that they knew. Yes. <laughs> yes. But my, my I had a, a partner because I was an investigative intern at the Public Defender Service in D.C., and Palos was Ethiopian. And it took me a full two weeks to convince him I was that not. You were not. Yeah. It's very proud cultural heritage, you know. And so when you see another Ethiopian, it's like, hey, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm part I see of me. It's like, I want to participate. Like, I want, but I'm really just from Wisconsin, guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So, but thank you so much for sharing a bit about that. Okay. But on to you. So, you grew up in Denver, Colorado. I kind of am inclined to jump to high school. I mean, I might be missing some really great stories about, you know, like little tonight and like what you were into, but I, but I'm wondering, and actually I'll leave it open-ended, but I'll give you some direction. Were you interested in the law at an early age? And if not, what were you into? It's a really interesting question. And as a child of immigrant parents, I don't know if you've heard this stereotype before, but it was like, less about what I was interested in and more about like, you will become something, either a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Those are your choices. That's right. Yeah. Those are your choices. And I'd be like, well, why are they so limited? Like that's three things out of hundreds of of different options. Like, how is that limited? You have three choices. That is three choices. (laughs) Three solid, you know, plans for your life. So I think I, I, I mean, my, I, so I, spent majority of my you know life with my dad after my parents split and he he was never that direct but our community our elders it was always very clear that it was like you should be a doctor really that was the but and not because it was just that they felt it was the idea that that, that's what we need back home we need you to do this so you can go back home and you can do something with yourself or you know we want you to make sure that you have the most opportunities possible Well, there's security there in lots yeah. of ways. It's a skill that should always be in demand. So basically, and I don't know that I was like, I was super driven and super motivated to like achieve in school, but it was, it was never with, it was just like a, 
I don't really know what I want to do, but I know I need to work hard right now. Yes, so and I need to do well. Happens. Yeah, it was it was more about that than knowing at the time that I wanted to go to law school. I don't yep. think I knew until probably later in college. But yeah, and we'll get there too. But no, but that makes complete sense, and it's funny because. I only have, you know, I try to keep all these interviews about 40 minutes or so. And like a two or two hour podcast, we would walk through your <laughs> life. But instead, I was like, what's the question that I'll either make her tell me, you know, what the deal was. <laughs> but that makes complete sense. And I think for a lot of people, it is like, I just knew I needed to do well. I knew I needed to go to college. But then yes, you add on that additional framework of, you know, my parents came here, it's like, as refugees from another country. So stability and you know, a valued skill set, like that's number one. The rest is kind of like, whatever, like go to school, get a job, doctor, lawyer, engineer. They're your choices. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> You're going to college, you need to get a full ride and, you know, carry on the torch. Right, that's do the rest. Well, so then how did you end up going to Wash U? Yeah, so I had never heard of Wash U. By the time like my senior year rolled around, I was convinced that I was going to an Ivy League school or some big name school for the same reason, because it was just like, that's what you do. You know, Mm -hmm. this is is all part of the, you know, what it meant to be successful in in our in our community. And so my high school counselor, I think, went to one of the, you know, they have weekends uh, where counselors come out and she came back from a weekend in St. Louis. And I remember she walked into like our, my like English class or something. We were like, it was in between classes. She goes, tonight you're going to go to Wash U. And I was like, Miss Penley, what are you talking about? Like, I've never even heard of that. I'm not going to some no-name school. Like, like, literally that was my impression. But anybody who knows anything about Wash U knows, first of all, they have amazing marketing. Like all of a sudden I was just on the radar there and I started getting all these materials. And I had done this program um, this lead program for minorities in business over the summer before my senior year of high school. And I met a, a, you know, a good friend there who in the fall, she was like, we just kept in touch. She goes, I'm applying to Wash U. Like they have the best pre-med program. I'm going to medical school and I'm going to get this scholarship. Like she was like, she knew exactly what she was doing. And I was like, man, I was like, I wish I'd, I, I, what? Who, like, who, right. who knows? Who this place? Right. And so she ended up I remember, so I applied to like 12 or 13 schools and I went ahead and applied to Wash U because I learned enough about it to know like, no, this is a good school and like they're, you know, pretty solid. Like, and the fact that Brandy was like basically being a cheerleader for them and she got in early admission and then encouraged me to apply for a scholarship that I ended up getting and it was for a full ride. And I, you know, fantastic. Yeah. So I went out there for like a weekend visit and I just fell in love with the school. I felt in love. I like the culture and the community there was different than a lot of the other schools I had visited. And I felt like it was a place where I was like, I know I'll be able to do well academically, but more importantly, like the community aspect was what sold me. And the scholarship, the John B. Irwin scholarship program was at the time, you know, targeting young black students who um, it was a merit-based scholarship and like that community in and of itself was kind mm, of what supportive. pulled me in. Yeah. It was something where I felt like if I'm going to be this far away from home, you know, I want to be somewhere where I feel like I can thrive. And that was, that was the biggest factor. So. All right. We're going to keep moving, but I actually want to go back for a moment because I realized I didn't ask this. Denver, Colorado, did it have a large Ethiopian community? And also in terms of your school, was it particularly diverse, The school, like your high school or middle school? I would say like in the 80s and 90s, there, 
it was a small, like very close knit community. Now it's huge. I mean, I don't even know how really many okay. I had no idea. It's huge. It's massive. I don't thirty thousand. I'm just like throwing numbers out there, but wow. it's yeah, but it's a large enormous. community. Yeah, and my high school was super diverse. It was, I would say, probably about fifty percent African American, and then like fifty percent everything else. The program I was in was not as diverse, but it was sort of like a program within a large urban high school. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, by the time I got to GW, which is the name of the George Washington High School, there was four Sinites there at the same time that really? I was there. <laughs> so it wasn't like, I mean, there were enough Ethiopians by that point where, or Ethiopians or Eritreans that, you know, it was really common. So... Well, it's interesting. And I ask because, so I've actually not, it's weird to say, but I have never even visited Colorado. But when I think about actually, maybe it's Boulder I'm thinking of versus Denver. I've heard it's not particularly diverse. So I was just curious because also that having for you this diverse experience growing up, or at least this experience where there's like some, you know, folks who look like you and then going to college, that can be an interesting transition. And so, as you mentioned, to have that, that community supporting you because, yeah, there's a little ways between uh, between St. Louis <laughs> and Denver, <laughs> and here you are, you know, jumping on a plane at some point, or maybe you got driven out. I don't know, but you're not at home anymore. So, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there are definitely parts of Colorado that are very homogenous, but I think Denver itself is pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. Just being like a, I mean, it's it's a major city. I I was actually surprised in a lot of ways at people's misconceptions about Denver, <laughs> but you know I think it's Colorado yeah. but it's funny because what in doing this show part of me is like oh should I share my ignorance but I've decided just to ask because if I have that question I assume someone else may but no I think that's right and it, that's really interesting context but okay so you get to wash you you've done all the things you need to do you've gotten the scholarship you're in college now at this point, do you have a sense of what you're going for? Or like, what are, what are we doing in college now? <laughs> Not a clue. I started out thinking I wanted to do aerospace engineering, which was totally short-lived. It lasted probably about a semester. That's um, a while. That's a solid three months. <laughs> yeah. It was like one actual like engineering class that just was like, I was like, this is not for me at all. I didn't know it at all when I got there. I was you know, exploring sort of all the options. I think I I took some pre-med classes. I was really interested in like the African, African African-American studies classes. I was all over the place. Which is sort of the point, by the way, Uh, particularly like a liberal arts sort of college is like, try some things, take some classes. Yeah, but you can't tell your Ethiopian immigrant parents. No, you can't. No, you can't. (laughs) You're like, I'm going to be an aerospace engineer. (laughs) And then I went from that to undecided. And it was just like the biggest kerfuffle at home. So no, I took my time though. I think probably around my sophomore year is when I started taking like finance classes in the business school and realized that like, okay, this is interesting. It started, you know, it started to more formulate Mm -hmm. in, in terms of, oh, this is something I feel like I can do and enjoy. I, at least I thought at the time and also like have a job after I graduate because that was what I was thinking about too. Is like, how can I be employed? Like, I, I like math, but I don't want to be like a, I don't know, math teacher. I, I was like, I'm not sure what to do with that. Like, what do you do with that? Yeah, yeah. like an application of that. But I was also still really passionate about and found other ways to take like 
Afro-African-American studies classes. So I did like a fellowship program where it was focused on, uh, I was able to do research in that area. I was, I ended up being a Spanish minor. So ultimately I ended up deciding to major in finance and international business. And then it wasn't until probably my- With the Spanish, so finance, international business with the Spanish minor. Yeah. Okay. And then my junior year, I want to say, I think is when I- then open the door to like, maybe I'll do international law. Like that would be really interesting. Oh. Like, be more, I knew I always, I, it was never with the idea that I wanted to do litigation of any sort. It was just like being able to come up like in a transactional practice and bring that business background to bear. So I think that's when it started yeah. to take shape. So you knew that transactional practice even existed in college? I, no? knew, I knew there were lots of types of lawyers who did like negotiations. Mm. I don't think I could. That's more than I knew in college. So I'm impressed. Well, because I knew I didn't want to do litigation. I was like, there has to be other things involved in international law. And I, I mm-hmm. think that was sort of my like Ben. And I think that's what opened the door to looking at Georgetown because they have such a great international law program. So it, it took me probably about, you know, two, two and a half years to come up with that plan into college. But eventually I figured it out. But that's a really solid plan. And hearing you is taking me back. I'm trying to think of what my headspace was. So I was one of those people who knew I'd be going to law school like forever. And um, so I went to American University for college and uh, for undergrad in D.C. And I just knew the business school, whenever I read the descriptions of the classes, I'd be like, oh, I just don't want to do that, which led me to this very like, pre-law, poli-sci, philosophy, things where I could read stuff and comment on it, yeah. which which I think one can see the starts of like a litigator forming. <laughs> but I think the way you did that made a lot of sense because even though, like you said, it caused a kerfuffle, you tried some things until you settled on what most resonated with you. Yeah. 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 It, it, and then law school next. Well, yeah, I took a, I took a year off in between to do this fellowship, the Coral Fellows Program. It was like a public affairs pe- fellowship in St. Louis, okay. which someone at WashU recommended to me. And, you know, I knew a, a few folks who had done it. And I think it was just good. It, it felt like a, it was both like a leadership training, but it was also like consulting work. So you were able to kind of just see other things along the way. And I, so I deferred for a year and then started. Oh, so you applied yeah, I applied Got my senior in. year and then just waited a year. Yeah. So I didn't end up coming to Georgetown until fall of 08. But yeah, so that, but I think folks like my family were surprised about the law school thing. I think they were just kind of like, we didn't see that one coming, you know? <laughs> were their hearts still set on middle, or not to say middle school, sorry, for medical school? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then they were like, and you're at WashU. It has a great pre med program. All of a sudden they knew all about WashU. And then I was like, <laughs> but you know, this, it worked out. The well, way so, and was, is, was Georgetown the, like that was the top choice yes. when you were deciding. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so you go to Georgetown and then what? So I came to Georgetown in fall of 08 started that first year was rough. I'm not going to lie. It was a shock to my system. It was the opposite of what my experience at WashU was in terms of like this, you know, warm, fuzzy, like, community and support systems and everything Mm -hmm. just kind of was very jarring, I would say. And I think I had this mentality that like, if you work really hard and you study really hard and you just do what you're supposed to do, that you'll get good grades and you'll do well. And, and I remember that first semester, it just like, I like, didn't, 
I was like in the library all the time. Like I would go to social events maybe, but I was just like so determined to like figure this out, you know? And then I got my first semester grades back and I was like, my feelings were so hurt. I mean, Mm. like hurt. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, this is the first time in my life where like hard work did not equal. Right. You're like hard work studying equals equals good grades. Outcome that you want. And I remember thinking like how backwards and, and, and then I would also see people who like, I know, I was like, I know you weren't as stressed out as I was. And you were like, you had time for intramural sports and this and that, and you were living your best life and you got amazing grades. Like, what am I doing wrong here? And, and I think the funny thing is that's when I met. So Lauren Champagne and I were in the same class. Oh, and there really? Was, I didn't know yeah, that. Okay. So we met that first year and there was- by the way, wait, wait, let me say, by the way, everybody, Lauren Champagne's episode two, but anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> so we met, but she always made fun of me. She goes, I would always see tonight. She'd have her backpack on and she'd be going to the library. Like she didn't have time to talk to anybody. And <laughs> it was like this running joke all of first semester. And then I was like, you know what? I can't. This is not something I can go at alone, and I don't even want to. I, and that wasn't even what I was trying to do. I just, I like had this in my head that it's like everything else. It's like every other type of education you've done. Put so your far. head down, yeah, study. Yeah, and you know, I was just way off. And so I, there was a a, a few other young black women who I think all of us, I'm pretty sure, I'm trying to think, all of us were like first generation law students trying to figure this out without any sort of roadmap and we like banded together and created our own little support system and I think things started to change that second semester I got more plugged in with organizations like the Black Law Student Association and you know the mentors that they offered Mm -hmm. and finding finding community you know and like and building that community along the way is what I think turned it around for me because otherwise I was just like and I'm curious, what did you find? And I know this is years later. And like I said, we have some law students starting to listen. So, you know, this may or may not be rel- relevant to their experience. But obviously, there was a disconnect. Like you said, I knew the recipe. It was study, put your head down, hard work equals good grades. I get my grades. That is not what happened. What changed for you? And I get that you plugged in, but did people give you more advice on like law school exams or what What was the factor there? That's a good question. I th- I think... The idea that you can just read these cases and pull out from that, like that you should intuitively know what that case was relevant for and like what it was like landmark, what was the takeaway from that case. As somebody who's like never read cases, being able to just identify that yourself, I think is very difficult. And I think the idea that you should be out there, what was that? It was, what was it called? Like, not outlining. Is that what it's called? Outlining cases? I don't even remember anymore. Yeah, outlining. Or you get like summaries of cases and stuff that'll tell you what the seminal wasn't. I didn't even do that. I didn't even know to do that. Like that's how, like just. Because who, right. But who some people know and it depends on who you're. Yes. Well, and that's really interesting you say that though, because so law school, like I adjusted to law school just fine, I guess. But I'd read a book about taking law school exams and I did have those friends who would say that thing where they're like, oh, I found an outline online or I'm reading, I don't even know if they're called horn books. Like they have names for all these things. I don't remember. But yeah, if you're if you're an island though, and like you said, I knew the recipe, but the recipe it's like a different recipe for law school, you don't you don't realize there's actually sort of like certain smarter ways to work 
yeah. versus harder. And then it's also really easy to get in that like stressed out 1L mindset in law school too. Yeah. And that becomes a spiral. <laughs> just exactly. like, yeah. So I think that was a game changer. Just like understanding that this is teaching you a different way of thinking and learning than you have ever had to do before. And it requires a retraining of how you viewed like, yes, they give you a syllabus and they tell you to do these readings, but like, that's, that's just like the first part, you know, if mm-hmm. anything, and there's all these other things that maybe people are not telling you to do that need to be done so that you can, you know, get where you need to go. And, you know, and then it's not like a shortcut to like, yes, read the case, but like, it's also a good idea to have a two L's notes from that class so they can help you like, so that you're just, you're not spending all of your time trying to distill something that has been distilled 10 times over. So mm-hmm. that was huge. And I felt you're giving me flashbacks too. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I, I just remembered the shift so clearly that, and it was also like, it helped me be happier in law school. Cause I was like, okay, I feel like I have, to, I actually do have time to do social activities and like get involved and get into organizations, which is the stuff that I love to do anyway. But I was like, I'm reading thousands of pages a night. Like, how do you do that? You know? Mm-hmm. And it became more evident to me because I had a really close friend whose parents, she was not black, but she, whose parents were lawyers. And I remember mm-hmm. I was in 2 and she was the one out and watching her go through that experience was so eye-opening because it was like like when she was doing her writing you know she had like someone to bounce things off not like you know it wasn't in any way inappropriate it was just like a resource where you're like man that's what that looks like that's what it means to have you know someone who's gone through this before be able to tell you like you know that legal writing is very different just even big picture context they're giving any any context you can get and what's funny is even when the professors try to give you context, it's not quite like I didn't understand civil procedure until we were done. And even then I didn't understand. It was literally me being like, oh, these are the rules that the federal court uses. Like I sat through three months of someone teaching me rules. And I'd like to think I'm a reasonably intelligent person, but my brain for whatever reason did not see it that way. So if I could have called and the funny thing is my mom did go to law school, but she never practiced. But so if I could have called my mom and she'd be like, honey, those are the rules they use in federal court. I've been like, oh. <laughs> Big picture, yeah. I don't know. It's it's just, I, I think that the analogy that I use, it was like, if we were like talking about football, that like everybody else had this playbook and like somebody yelled snap and they all knew their, where to run and where to go on the field. Yep. And I was like running in circles. Like that was how it felt <laughs> for yep. a while. Sorry. That gives me a flashback <laughs> to my experience playing freshman soccer in high school. And I, I have no athletic ability. It was the first time I've ever played organized sports. And I, I, I get to, you know, games or whatever, practices. I didn't realize everyone else been playing soccer since they were four or six. And so when someone yells, I think, I think the term is square, like meaning kick, I'm over here. Kick, I don't know what that means. Like I haven't, but it's, but it's a similar analogy. And it's, it's great that you share that because as law students listen, I think it can be affirming to hear that if you are sort of floating. And a lot of law students just started and they're starting remotely. This idea, don't be an island, ask for help, ask for people to give you context. Some people already have a lot more context than you can imagine. And of course, you know, do your best and find things that you like. But I just think that's really important because it can be really disheartening. And I'm sure it felt that way for you when you're like, I'm just, this is not clicking for me. Like what is going on? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So law school gets better. You get plugged in. Yes. Eventually you graduate. But 
during that, you know, I don't know, I want to call it that matriculating process, but at some point, did you know that more of a corporate transactional practice was was for you or how did you decide on your practice area? Yeah, so I think I knew that pretty early on. I, so, you know, I did both summers. The first summer I did a summer associate position with an international firm in Beijing because I still thought I wanted to do international law. I realized quickly that I don't like being, this is a theme in my life. I don't like being apart from a community, like 12 mm. hours away from family and friends, like calling people yep. at midnight. Like it sounded a lot more doable. And then when I had to do it for a, a whole summer, it was just like, I mean, I, I of course made new friends and, you know, it was fine. But the idea that I wanted to be rooted closer to home, I think became pretty evident. So, and where were you at that summer? Like what, lo- like geographically, where was that? It was, was in still in DC. Oh, it was in. Ba- it was literally in. You were literally in Beijing. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. In Beijing. <laughs> I just decided it was like <laughs> the satellite office. Oh no, sorry. No, no. At a Chinese. I mean, it was a wow. Chinese firm in China. That's an amazing opportunity, though. It was. Open- it was very, and I'm glad I did it because it showed me like this is awesome, and I don't necessarily want to live abroad. Like I want to stay. Yep somewhere where I can call my family during daytime hours. I'm going to drive the law students crazy. We're not going to go down the rabbit hole of how you got, because they're, they're just going to email you directly to find out. Uh, okay. Cause yep. that's not the point. We're going to yeah. keep moving, well, but you realize what you didn't want to do. Yeah. So then you're, then I, I assume your second family. summer. Yeah. My second summer got a, I was a summer associate here at a firm, another firm in DC. They had a really awesome sort of community development been there was a practice that I was particularly interested in doing sort of tax credit finance and syndication work and then end up they had I mean this was all also happening in the aftermath of the 08 recession so I yes. was like one of the very fortunate few who like actually was able to keep a job I mean I was deferred temp- like for six months after I graduated but was able to start in the group that I wanted to and I you know yeah so you summered it was that summer 2000. 2000- 11 summer of 2010 because I graduated 2010 yeah you're supposed to start fall 2011 yeah and I started spring of 2012 okay and then for those who don't know I mean I think everyone's heard great recession so I was like the first year class starting around the great recession that 08 09 but the effects of that lasted years (laughs) and I can't remember if it was the class of 2010 or even your class that almost had like this lost generation sort of, it might've been, it might've been you actually, (laughs) you're you're nodding. Yes. I think it was our class. I think there was a large portion of my graduating class that, you know, was unemployed at the time. Yep. So a lot of good fortune there. So you're deferred, but the good fortune that you did start. Yep. So I I worked doing um, new market tax credit lending, which is it's a, I would say a form of like community development lending for a okay. while. And also- I like, appreciate you saying that because I have no idea what that yeah, is. Yeah, I know. It's not, it's <laughs> just, I had never heard of that actually, the, the tax credit before I did it. But then at half, that was probably half my practice and the other half was doing renewable energy finance. So did that for about four years. Yeah. And then it looks like you got the opportunity to go in-house. Yes. So I went in-house with a solar developer that was based in D.C., which is so different. I mean, when you're coming from a law firm, the idea that you have like multiple clients and then you go from that to having like one client and mm-hmm. you're in the weeds with them all the time and you're doing more of, a, I mean, 
you're still doing like legal work. I was still doing deals and, you know, transactions and all of that, but you're also doing like business advising. And so you're being asked to make judgment calls on commercial things as well. So it was a really good experience. I'm definitely glad that I did it while I was there. I remember also thinking like, I was a fourth year when I, when I left my firm. So there was still, you know, when you're a mid-level associate, there was still a lot of like training and development that I felt like I needed to have under Mm -hmm. like in, in a law firm setting that because when you go in, I mean, when I got there, when I went in house, there was three attorneys. So we were three of us, like the general counsel was handling all the like big corporate level things. And then there was two of us doing all these deals. And I was like, like what's going on? <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is a lot. You know? But it was a very good learning experience to see it from like a client standpoint. Yes, to get and that I perspective. It did. It was really helpful. Well, and I love you sharing both One, of course, you pick up the client perspective, but also, so for me as a former recruiter, often for attorneys, for law firm attorneys, and actually I did this myself before I realized I should just stop practicing and, you know, go down this other path. But your thought is, of course, everything's amazing as an in-house counsel. Like everything, and it doesn't matter the size of the company, it doesn't matter your role, but just being in-house is obviously amazing. And so, and I don't say that, you know, I I don't know anything about where you're in-house or disparage the company, but I think it's just important for people to hear that in-house is not necessarily this kind of like panacea to anything, you know, that you didn't like about your law firm will be fixed magically if you go in-house. But it does show you a different perspective, which can be really, really, you know, useful for for so many ways. But I've I've never worked in-house, but I have heard often that you do need to really, you're advising the business, right? So things do need to change into how you advise you know, how you interact in the organization is different from in a law firm. Yes, for sure. And I think the idea also that I don't think you realize or appreciate the resources that are at your disposal when you're at a law firm. Like if you have this random question about, I don't know, real estate, like you just go call the real estate partner. And like the idea that everybody is sort of there on your team at your fingertips. Whereas when you're in-house, it's like, you need to answer all those questions. Like they're like, what do you mean? You don't know how to do environmental you don't know how to do x and you're like ah, you're like i'm looking at google right now <laughs> right back. yeah well i mean thankfully it didn't get that bad but <laughs> i'm just kidding please nobody nobody think that i'm saying she, she no, consulted no. google but the idea that you're a specialist is no is like kind of out the door when you're in-house and you become yeah. a generalist really quickly yep solving the business's problems particularly when it's a small in-house team yeah. so however did foley entice you to go back or to come back to the law firm thing? How did you hear about Foley and Lardner? So actually, it was like two parts of it, I guess. The first part of it was that two of the folks on the Foley team were sort of our outside counsel for some really discreet tax items. So we were working with John Eliason and Jocelyn Lavallo on like, I think some sale leaseback questions. So we were just getting feedback from them. So I connected with John that way. And I knew of the team from my time at my old firm as well, just because we ran in the same spaces. We were working mm-hmm. with a lot of the same clients, you know, so the, the I knew I was, fam- I was familiar with them, but I didn't know them personally. And then at the same time, this name keeps popping up because she's my best friend from law school. Lauren was here as well. And I think it was a combination of things like John was sort of like, Hey, if you're ever interested in going back into a law firm, like let me know. And I was like, hmm. I was like, maybe. Lauren, why don't you go check out like what's his team like? Like, 
is everybody happy over there? Everything looking good, you know? Yeah, <laughs> get some intel. Out? Intel's important, yes. <laughs> and she goes, he's awesome. The team's awesome. Like, they love it. She was, like, talking about, like, I mean, the things that she was describing about just how, like, people stay here and the longevity of people's careers and the type of team and the dynamic, I think, appealed to me for sure. So I think a combination of Lauren and John kind of sold me. And I, I remember being like, <laughs> when I started, I was like, um, you know, let's just see. Maybe I don't know about the law firm thing, but we'll give it a try for like six months. Well, let me just give you. And John was like, so we're on probation. I was like, yeah. Probation. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and now it's, and now now it's like, like three years, years later. Yeah, I, yeah. Have we finished the probation? Are, are we ended. out of the probationary period? Probation period <laughs> ended a while ago. <laughs> but I think it was a lot of reservations because I was a young mom. Like I had my daughter. She was 11 months old when I was starting. I just, I was really apprehensive about, you know, it's a very demanding job. And like, I wasn't sure mm-hmm. if I was cut, I wasn't sure if I was cut out to keep up with what I know the pace to be and so it was more about me not being sure this was a good Mm -hmm. fit for you know my lifestyle yeah and where you are and I'm just nodding as you're talking because so my kids are seven and nine I had them when I was still practicing as an associate I lateraled with a 10 month old and a two and a half year old and you know regardless of one's career aspirations depending on where you just are in your life it will give you pause to take a new job like because you're just like, I know the dynamic where I am, but I appreciate you sharing that because, but I just think that's such a, like a universal concern. And now I know, I know also because of coronavirus, you're at home, your daughter's home right now. We've kept our fingers crossed that she, if she had joined us, that would be fine. But I'm just curious. So how old is she now? She's three. She'll be four in November. So I can't say enough how much of like a positive and like supporting team I have here because it it's a challenge. Like there's so many things that pop up and you're like your daycare calls and they're just like, Kizzy's mm-hmm. six, she has to go home, you know? And you're like, it's two in the afternoon and I have a call in 10 minutes, you know? And the idea that people like really look out for each other and that you are able to both you know, take on the the work that you need to, but also have the flexibility that you need. Yes. It's huge. And I don't, I can't, I can't speak to other places, but I don't know that that is, I can't understate how much that has been like a, re, a large yep. part of how important being able that is. to stay and, you know, thrive here. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. It's sort of the, I don't want to say curse, but anyway, the gift and the curse of the billable hour is frequently, it depends on, you know, who you work with you know, whatever from your app, but there is flexibility as to when you're doing the work, which is so important. But then obviously it goes without saying, just also working with just kind, understanding people who particularly once they know you're going to get the work done, you know, they're kind of like, people have children. Like we have to, and particularly now though, like now now. it's just kind of crazy. (laughs) All the worlds have converged now. So that, you know, she's a regular guest appearance on any like video conference that I have at this point and knows people who call me. It's like, mommy, your computer's calling and will tell me who it is. (laughs) Which is funny. And I mean, I guess, you know, there's a lot of just really difficult things happening in the world right now, you know, too many to even count, but a silver lining I think has been, we've all had to become more human throughout this experience. So, you know, for someone listening to this in six months or a year, right now it's September, 2020, we're six months into home quarantine and coronavirus and all of that. And people just have had to accept that, yeah, sometimes you might see a kid just traipse through my background 
<laughs> or I yeah. might be like, hold on, I have to go right now. I'll call you right back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's true. Like you said, I think it's made people more understanding and compassionate in a lot of ways as well. So I guess that, that is definitely the upside to all of this. Yes. Absolutely. Well, we're getting close to our time. So as we wind down, although last time I had a follow-up for my wind down question, so we'll see what happens tonight. But as we wind down and you reflect on, I mean, at this point, you are eight or nine years into your legal career, but you're closing on a decade. What's your advice? Whether it could be to your, you know, college age self before she embarks on this, you know, what is going to be the better part of a decade journey till now, or to current law students when it comes to navigating a career as a lawyer, particularly a career at a large law firm? My advice would be to, I don't know that I have specific ways to do this. It's more just like an understanding that I've come to now, but it's taken me way too long, is to like to not lose your sense of self and to not let unfamiliar environments, situations, works that whatever it is force you to change like who you are or how you how you show up because I do think particularly for I don't know I mean I'm gonna only speak for myself like as a black woman like showing up at a law firm my first like real grown-up job it was kind of like this anxiety or I don't even know just like fear of like I don't want anybody to know that like I, I don't feel like I belong here so or mm-hmm. I don't feel like I fit here or I don't have the same background or stories or upbringing or whatever it is and so it it like made me like close myself off in a lot of ways that I think was to my detriment you know it's like be who you are like don't be afraid to be who you are if that's not the place for you then it's not the place for you it's for you and that's fine Mm -hmm. that's such a powerful lesson though because I do think particularly when you're coming from like I just need a job I have student loans or I need this idea that that if a place doesn't appreciate you that you should go somewhere else is like, no, 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 I'm going to do what you need me to do (laughs) so that this works out. But no, that's such a strong and important thing and takes some time, I think, to to really learn and trust. Yeah. And I would say that it even applies to law school. It's like the idea that there's so many things like, well, you're supposed to do this or you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to go about this way. Like, you know, there's a lot of pressures that I think are imposed on you in this process. And just like, don't be afraid to chart your own path and your own way of doing it and just be confident. Like, look, I've gotten this far, even if it doesn't look like everybody else's path, like I'm going to get to wherever I'm going. So yes. And we'll stop there. The show's called the path and the practice. So, I mean, is there a better way to end? (laughs) Um, It's taking everything for me not to keep talking to you for like another 30 minutes, but we will wrap up. And with that, I'll ask if somebody has questions, can they feel free to reach out to you if they find you on Foley's website? Sure, 100%. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thanks, Alexis. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Sunite. I am thrilled to add this update on to her episode, which is that as of February 2022, Sunite joined the partnership at Foley and Lardner. Congratulations, Sunite. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner 
LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.